are listening to a podcast of The View, where we discuss today's topics from an anti-racist, anti-oppressive, multicultural perspective. This podcast is brought to you by the Church of the Larger Fellowship. To subscribe, visit questformeaning.org or search for Church of the Larger Fellowship in the iTunes Store. Hey, good morning. You've joined us for another episode of The View, and we're excited to um, go on with our series as we uh, bring in the Commission for Institutional Change. And But before we get to introducing our special guests, all of whom we're very excited to get to meet today, Christina, how are you doing? Hi, everybody. I'm Christina Rivera. I'm coming to you from Charlottesville, Virginia, where spring has sprung. It's uh, just really lovely hour by hour weather changes um, and we've even had some of our classic Virginia humidity. Oh, it's a little too early for that, uh, especially for my hair. So we're doing, we're doing well. How you doing, Michael? I am doing okay. This is Michael Tino here in Peekskill, New York, where there were like six flakes of snow this morning, but they seem to have stopped. It is uh, a gray spring day here and um, I'm here which is the good news, uh, because one never knows in the um, in the schedule of, of Raymond Street Elementary School what's going to pop up on Thursday morning. Uh, last week, uh, last week, my my daughter's school decided to schedule her physical therapy online for right in the middle of the view. So, I was doing physical therapy with my daughter online in the middle of the view while you all were talking about young adult things, and I'm sorry I missed you. So it's good to be with you. Antonia. Just yes. before we move on, and Antonia also could answer this. You know, <laughs> so many ministers with younger kids in the house are talking about how it is to serve right now. And I wondered if you would just share a little bit, because I think it's good for those of us who feel sorry for ourselves to remember what other people are also dealing with. Um, you know, there are struggles that I have that other people don't have, and there are struggles that I don't have that other people do. And I, you know, <laughs> we, we all, we all are getting through the best we can. Um, I am not by calling or by skill, a first grade special education teacher. Um, and yet I have to be that, uh, much of the time while also doing ministry full time and, keeping the first grader from interrupting my husband who is working full-time from home uh, publishing the New York Times. So, um, <laughs> uh, you know, it, uh, it's, it's hectic and it's day by day and it's like one day at a time and we do the best we can. So right now she's doing her writing assignment with her papa and I'm here on The View. Antonia, how are you there in, in Delaware with your small ones um delaware is gloomy as far as i can see out of my window it's been cold we have gotten to the point that we are paying our 17 year old to, to crisis school our seven-year-old because it just got really real um as you know i'm, I'm serving at clf and at uh, u montclair so it just gets to a point that um and you have to choose something and and hopefully she'll come out okay at the end of first grade um <laughs> uh yeah um i 
my family has lots of teachers and I was clear very early that I was not a teacher. And I am still very clear that I am not a teacher. And my whole goal is just to get her emotionally healthy through this time and everything else. Hopefully teachers can make up what we have not done. My daughter, however, seems to be, my kid, I should say, seems to be a great first grade teacher, like with supplemental lessons. <laughs> I think you figured out what you should do. So <laughs> yeah, so that's a benefit of this being in the house. Um, she's in a dual language program. So there are extra things that, um, that we do. My 13 year old is mostly doing his classwork um, by himself with just some checking and rechecking. Um, so it's just, you know, it's a lot to be responsible for your the education of your children and, you know, the religious and spiritual lives of other people and yourself while all being in the house for how many weeks is this? I just, I just want my family to survive emotionally healthy. <laughs> That's all, the, the bar is super low for me <laughs> right now. Uh, yeah, so I'll be here um, putting your things, the things that you write into the chat for the host on YouTube. Thank you for being here with us and just being so supportive. Um, we are excited to have the commission here. And so thank you all. See you soon. Thanks, Antonia. Well, we'll jump right in because we're really excited to have <clears throat> four members from the commission with us today. So I'll introduce you all and then, um, yeah, let's just jump right into it. So we have Sir LaBear, a writer based in Akron, Ohio, and a trustee at the Union Church of Akron. Shout out to Akron. <laughs> We have Mary Byron, owner of Cloud Nine Quilts in Absaroki. Did I say that right? Absaroki? Absorki. Absorki. Okay. Absorki, Montana. And she's a member of the UUA Audit Committee. We have Reverend Leslie Takahashi, who, if we named all the things she does, we'd be here all day. But she's serving as chair of the Commission on Institutional Change, and she's the lead minister at Mount Diablo UU Church. And uh, we have Dr. Elias Ortega, who is the president of Meadville Lombard. And all of them are members of this commission that's been at work for a long time and is now uh, ready to share some of what they've been learning. So let's jump right in. You came a couple weeks ago and we talked about this pandemic time and all of the disparities and living and dying and health and care and money and all of it. And let's start there again, because, well, we're still there. Leslie? Yep, I'm just going to just say quickly, and then I'm going to turn it over to my um, dear colleague, sir. But I want to just say that one of the things that we've been really focused on is that the work that we've been doing since 2017 is in some ways... Um, very timely because when we come, as we come, and as we are now coming out of, we're making choices every day now about what we're going to live in in this new world. The world has already changed. So as we make those choices, um, the work that we've done, I think we believe it prov provides like a blueprint for Unitarian Universalism to re-examine who we want to be through a diversity, equity, and inclusive lens. And so we really feel like this is it, folks. We've um, we've pre-done the work for uh, these times, and um, we really want to focus on that um, in this 
particular hour. And I want to turn it over to Sir. Yes, thank you. And thank you to the view for having me. Uh, I would like to read a kind of a statement that, from the commission uh, about this moment that I think is really, really timely and kind of following up on what uh, Leslie just articulated. So our work has been done with an understanding of the oppression that Black, Indigenous, and people of color marginalized and folks have already experienced, are experiencing now, and are likely to experience in the near future due to increased right-wing activity, climate collapse effects, et cetera. And also the question of what the UU movement was prepared to do to protect the most vulnerable during times of extreme uncertainty. Without question, those times of uncertainty are upon us. This is an historic crisis that will prove to be a hard acid test of our systems, structures, and communities, including Unitarian Universalism. And more important than the survival of our denomination, our legacy as a faith tradition will be judged by history against how we responded to this moment. As we speak, Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities are being devastated as the deadly reality of structural racism is illuminated during this pandemic. To meet this challenge, we will need to draw on all the traditions of liberation, organizing, and protests we have accumulated over the past 200 years and more so for our marginalized siblings among us. And more importantly, those on the privileged end of the wealth gap must take radical revolutionary action to materially change the conditions we all live in. We face a historic threat, one that no one in this generation has experienced to these proportions, and our response must be equally proportional. We must help all people bring all of their capacity for survival to bear. We have the resources now, and we must use them. Without prioritizing this privileged concept of preservation, especially considering that we may lose so many, that preservation would be a moot point. All of our futures are at stake, and radically addressing inequality is our only way forward. And so we say reparations now, reparations now, reparations now. Just gonna sit with that for just a moment. And I think I'd like to call back to some of the things that uh, Reverend Natalie Fenmore, who is not here, has said since since we wrote that, since we have come into understanding just how extreme this crisis is, we have to be aware, and today we'll talk a little bit about living our values, that when we talk about the world we come out, become uh, out of our isolation into, we have to remember that the world that we will come out to is being uh, created by our actions at this moment. The same way that we have our values and our, our interpretation of what the future should hold, there are folks who are extremely right-wing, extremely, extremely oppressive-minded, who are using this opportunity to influence that future. So we ourselves, we have to take the same approach as we see how this is kind of laying bare all of the structural inequities that we have. Uh, we are also seeing attacks on our legislation around climate change, transgender rights, around abortion, human rights, access to our own bodies. So we have to realize that when we talk about the future, what we are talking about is right now. Uh, and I'll kind of open it up to some responses, uh, maybe from my fellow commissioners or the view. 
I just want to um, take a moment to, well, first of all, thanks, sir, for being the primary author of that statement, which we've really appreciated. And, but also just to say, you know, it's very important to recognize that this isn't something I want to really amplify what sir said about these are decisions we're making right now. So I live in California, um, which is a state that's had kind of taken its own path and has been pretty um, responsive to looking at the needs and how this happens. Um, for example, in response to the decision of the White House yesterday to, to deny education funds to um, you know, dreamers um, through, the, through the relief efforts, California said they'll use California funds to offset that. So, I mean, it's a very, it's, in that way, it's a, a good place to be. And leadership really matters. Um, I live in a very, uh, we, one of the most expensive areas of the country to live in, but in a very racially in an, and economically mixed area. And I saw in the two days since the um, since President Trump's announcements, I watched our entire characteristic of our neighborhood shift. Um, we would go out, there'd be people wearing masks, all the businesses, a lot of home-based businesses in my neighborhood, like you know plumbers and other people that work in services. The trucks have all been parked for weeks. All those trucks are now gone. People are out working. Nobody's wearing masks. I got harassed for wearing a mask. I had somebody roll down and start screaming at me for being a, a liberal commie, um, you know. And so, I mean, I want, I want us. And I live in California, okay, just, uh, just a, you know, within a forty-five minute drive. Right now, probably thirty-five minute drive of San Francisco. So, I want, I want to say that the leadership matters. So, our leadership, our moral leadership in our communities, really matters because these decisions are being made right now. They're not down the road. They're not four weeks from now or seven weeks from now or two months from now. They're right now. So that's, that's, I've, and I think in the same way, the decisions we make about who we prioritize within our own Unitarian Universalist frameworks really matter. And so that's, that's what I would, I would add, invite other commissioners to say anything. This might be a good time, you know, I think one of the things that we talked about a little bit last time, but we're really glad to have, um, Elias with us today is to talk a little bit about why we believe this, this particular plan of action that we've outlined really is um, the articulation of our theological mandates in this time. And I think that might be a really good place to go to. So Elias, I'm gonna go to you. And just, I think to, to invite, to open up the conversation, one of the things that we understood as our uh, foundational mandates as we engage in this in this work of the commission was to frame um, the not only the work but also the findings uh, for us as a faith community based on our theological values and our uh, our faithful grounding and, and I think for us what that has meant is how do we think about the work of justice right and the call uh, to do justice in the world in connection to the kinds of, of faith lives that we live or in other words, how do we in, ingrain and embed right, this conversation around justice and the kind of worship that we do in the kinds of uh, community engagement that we do? I think as Unitarian Universalists, we are very good about having the justice conversation and the faith forwarding on the conversation, but we are not as good as finding the sacred grounding for the work that we do. So in, in this particular uh, conversation around reparations uh, and the work that we have done over the last three years, what we think uh, that we know and we found out is, is we are proclaiming and we are calling for uh, the, the, the sanctity of life, rather the preservation of the, of the livelihood of religious professionals of color, right? The, the affirmation of the ministry and the ways in which 
they have been they have suffered right in in our ways of, of working the call is to to live into deeper separate community which means uh how do we engage a sacred work or as holy work uh the reparation for the damage that has been done in our communities and in this particular moment right we, we are seeing that being amplified because community of color are already vulnerable right and those communities in the margin they become hyper vulnerable in moments of crisis like this i think um Leslie, one of the things that you said is in talking about our leadership now and in our congregations and communities. And I think that is super, super important. Um, I've been following, you know, I'm, I'm a religious educator, but I'm also an UU administrator. And so I've been following very closely the uh, PPP federal program, um, the Paycheck uh, Protection Program. Um, and really trying to encourage uh, congregations and communities to apply for the program. It did run out of funds. There were fairly sure funds will be available again. So people need, congregations need to get their applications in now. Um, but one of the things I've been disheartened to hear is that there is conversation going on around um, whether or not, congregations should apply because of a separation of church and state and trying to maintain that separation. And, you know, I think when we're talking about the most vulnerable within our congregations and our communities, we're also talking about our religious professionals of color and their job security. Um, and it, it makes me, I mean, I'm just, I'll be honest, it makes me a little angry that people would like to have a philosophical discussion about separation of church and state over be, people being able to be employed and have, you know, food on the table and be able to, you know, pay for internet connections so their kids can continue to do online distance learning. Um, so I would just encourage folks to really, you know, try and keep, keep an eye on the ball of what we're trying to do here for each other. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we, we can have lots of philosophical discussions about separation of church and state and um, when this is all over. Um, happy to do that, happy to talk about, you know, whether or not we should be paying property taxes and, um, you know, income uh, taxes and all of that kind of thing. Um, I would just posit that this is not that time to have that conversation. This is a time to, to be protecting um, our communities, the people in our communities, um, that we often don't think of as being, oh, those people over there that need help that are actually right here in our congregations um, needing the, that assistance. That's right. And I think that, um, you know, one of the first things that the commission did, and we did this in 17 and 18, was a deep dive into the world of being a religious professional, especially a religious professional of color. But it also made us look at what it means to be a religious professional, right, among us. And one of the things we see is the way that privilege plays into that conversation, that we are too many people in our congregation still treat people that just try to ignore the fact that we are actually employers. We have the responsibility to be morally based employers, that our employment should be based in our values. And this is a great example, the one that you just gave, right? This is not a philosophical debate about, you know, some abstract thing. It may be for some people, but for a lot of us, it's you know, it's bread on the table and it's, you know, the security of our families. And so I think it's really important 
that we um, push that because that is actually a manifestation of our privilege, of the privilege that's among us, that we don't consider that. And I, I agree with you. There's a lot of, we've also been following, we have an application in hoping that the next reauthorization will make it. This is in my day job. But the thing that I will say that's been discouraging is how many <clears throat> how many of the congregations have just gone to, we will cut these positions and we're cutting these salaries and they're doing it just across the board with no consideration. And we know that when people start doing that, our part-time people, you know, which is often where our, um, you know, black indigenous and people of color are working, um, our positions that people consider less essential um, get cut. And all of these are decisions about who we're going to be. So that's a specific, really great example of of how we have to live our values. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm listening to the language y'all are using and it's about care and solidarity and collective thinking. And, and I'm contrasting that with the language that's in the public domain so much about this as a war, which is the, the going metaphor for what we're doing, which is a war. And and that's being used all over the world, including the U.S., to justify, you know, authoritarian moves. And um, and I'm wondering because I I think you probably have helpful language to reshape, um, because I think part of moral leadership is offering a storyline for people to live into. And I so I wondered as you, not just in the pandemic, but as you've been doing this work theologically, what kind of language you've seen emerge that feels important. Uh, for visionary um, living into our values? You know, uh, that is a good question, Meg, because I don't, to be quite quite honest, I, I don't think that we have found a lot of new language. We just have found conversations around living into or understanding with more depth the language that we already have. Right. So in, in other words, uh, when we talk about sacred community or beloved community, right, who, who defines what that community looks like and who is the in of the community and the out, right? For whom is or for whom is the community meant to protect? Right. When we talk about privilege, right, is, is the conversation around how do we use that privilege and are we aware of that privilege? And oftentimes to who the privilege either serve or hurt or benefit becomes part of that conversation. Um, what I can say, though, is that we did encounter uh, um, the attempt to recover right, language of, of worship, language of sacredness, uh, language of, of ritual life. And uh, I also want to remind the folks watching that a number of years ago during uh, Bill Sinclair's presidency, right, that language of reverence became very controversial for folks. Um, right, And we're seeing, again, the, the, the resurgence to have that reclamation. What does it mean to be then in sacred community in order to be able to live right into the aspirations of the faith. And I think it's really important for you use um, who carry a lot of privilege for us to listen to that language and try to hear it anew and to understand um, stories and lived experiences that are not our own and to be able to follow those and not think that um, the, the world that we know is um, the only one that that's valid and that matters. You know, I think one thing that we have learned and we know this um, is that every UU community, no matter what kind it is, has a lot of different perspectives within it and a lot of different experiences within it. 
And one of the things that privilege does is it tends to homogenize everything and make a general statement. So this pandemic, I think, invites us into embracing the multiple, you know, multiple truths that are within our own frames every day, because we know that people, we know who's being affected, you know, most by this, by this, um, by this COVID-19. And it's, you know, people that are affected by the other systemic injustices that we've been naming. And so how do we live into that? How do we see all of that as us? And how do we actually, one of the most tragic things I think is that we create cultures in which people who are struggling, um, because we have these um, norms about, you know, having about perfectionism or about having to present a certain way, we don't actually allow people to ask for help when they need it, when we could very easily be providing help within our own communities to people within our own communities. And we have rhetoric that I, I hear a lot, I'm hearing a lot of it now, seeing a lot of it in social media about those people out there. And it's not those people out there, it's our people in here and all people are our people. I mean, there, so there's two different theological aspects of this that I think it's really important for us to live into. These are basic foundational pieces of what we have been looking at as the commission. And because you said language, Meg, I know that usually on The View, you don't do slides. We're gonna be the rude guests and do one slide. I think maybe maybe two, maybe two, but just one slide. And I'm gonna... <laughs> Because we we did spend we are um, um, we are in the process of releasing a report. The report will be released around 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 General Assembly time. But you know I don't know what that means anymore because General Assembly time is going to be really long. Um, but somewhere around there we'll be re releasing this report. So we have actually been wrestling as a group with language. So I'd, I'd like to show um, our slide on what we're talking about about theology, and I'd like to ask Elias to talk us through it. Okay, so in, as, as I mentioned earlier, in our commission work, we made the commitment to ground our work uh, on, our, on our theology. Right? We are a faith community, and therefore our theological understanding of, of the sacred right, of community should guide the work that we do. One of the challenges that we face uh, early on uh, is what, uh, what we start to call uh, the, the larger theological illiteracy right, of, our, of our community as a whole. So there's some conversation around theology, but it's oftentimes not grounded, right, in our tradition. In other words, it's not grounded in the legacy uh, of, of our movements, right? So uh, the, the Unitarian um, perspective, right, or the universal perspective, um, the, the merger between these two movements, right? What is the theological language that emerge? Uh, what we found uh, and what we know is after the merger, um, one of the compromises that was made was to leave a lot of the theological understanding and language behind. But we find that in order to face this time and these difficulties, we have to reclaim right, that language. What does it mean for us to really embrace what a new universalism could look like in terms of, of justice, in terms of community creation? Right? What does it mean to express the bounds of, of love and justice uh, to our fellows, not only ourselves and in our small communities, right, but within the larger world. Uh, for us, that also meant that we need to understand that a lot of our theological legacy is also embedded into positions of privilege, right, ideology that um, cements or put forward uh, rational thinking over body, right, this kind of dichotomies, mind versus, uh, versus soul or mind versus body, sacred and secular, right, it is also articulated from a very uh, gender perspective, right, very male and very white. So we have to be able to think through that in new ways for 
address a moment of liberation, right? What does it look like to engage our theological legacies with an eye towards the liberation of those communities that are being the most impacted right, in, our, in our work? Uh, we also made the commitment to acknowledge the anthropocentric work, right? It's a theological mandate, right? This is not, uh, if we like it, this is not a matter of if we feel convicted or not. One of the things that came over and over in our, in our work and interviews is uh, particularly folks in the margin, uh, really in some ways mourning the loss of the language of sin, right? And salvation, not because we are wanting to recover, right? Kind of uh, Judeo-Christian notions of sin necessarily, but it's a matter of what is the language that we have as a faith community to call each other into account, right? When we have missed the mark and for, for us then thinking through uh, anti-oppression as a theological mandate would allow us then to have some of those conversations. Uh, and, and finally, right, we were also uh, convicted in our work to recover and reinterpret uh, how do we talk about covenant within our faith, right? Covenant in not only between communities, but as a, at a denominational level, between congregations in the UUA, uh, right between us as Unitarian Universalists in the planet, right, et cetera. That conversation of deepening of our understanding and, right, as necessary for our survival, right, rose to the top. There's any other commissioner that wants to add to that conversation? And we'll pass the baton. So, you know, I just think that what a great thing we could be doing right now as we think about um, what's happening in our world, not to be thinking about our own personal perspective, like Christina was saying, like, I, I want to argue about church and state right now, you know, but really be thinking about like, well, what, how do we connect to this from a theological standpoint? What are we called to do from our theological heritage in these times, right? And how do we embrace, you know, the, the sacred nature of all life? So it's our job to preserve all life, not just what's, you know, go out into the world because it's frustrating for me to be confined or whatever the whatever our challenge is, you know, um, how do we think about our interdependence and that what happens to our neighbors down the street is actually happening to us? Like, how do we actually live into this in our times right now um, during this pandemic? I think that's the question for us. And, you know, that's really the question that we're asking Unitarian Universalism to engage with is that we're not actually just a collection of individuals with you know, that just have, that exists only to allow us to each have our own opinions. We actually come out of a theological heritage. And how do we reclaim that? Is there a time that, um, that would be more important than during a worldwide pandemic? You know, that, that seems really important. Well, and getting back to reparations, you know, what kind of reparations are necessary to even have the nerve to talk about beloved community for Unitarian Universalism? in this time and in any time, really, because the bulk of your work was done, not in this time, but this time is just making more dramatic what, what's always been true, right? I mean, it's just taking it to a new level. Sir, I'm wondering um, what you make of this conversation. I think the, to answer a little bit about the question about language uh, and to tie into that, I do agree that a lot of our work has been refocusing on what our language means uh, to us and how does that manifest in our actions. And I think that it's key that we think about interconnectedness, uh, especially 
at this time. Uh, so one of the frequent criticisms of anti-oppression and the hospitality work is that folks say they are tired of us fo focusing internal, uh, internally, the navel gazing, quote unquote. Yet I think one of the things this crisis has showed us is that all of these uh, policies, all of our, our values, our philosophies are directly uh, related to what happens, what our actions are, and that we are interconnected in a way that is extreme and startling. Um, this, any, any view of the supply chain right now uh, should show us that. And I think that our concept of, so for language, just what does it really mean to be interconnected? And I think we have to remember as well, when we talk about reparations, we are also talking about relations between people. And we cannot do accountable justice work and we cannot hold our values of justice and equity close if we are not able to, mean, to remain in good relationship with those most affected by the conditions of injustice. I think too, uh, and this is another kind of language thing that, that I know I've started to use more and that folks will find in the report, the concept of well-being as meaning, and health is kind of a, controversial term, I like to think of sustainable sustainability. Uh, how, when I think of health personally, how sustainable, how sound uh, is it? Uh, and that includes, well-being includes all areas, spiritual, mental, physical, financial, social, environmental. Uh, do folks have a horizon of possibilities that are available to them the same way that those in privilege have? So I think when we especially when we think about language and what do these things mean, we, we, we are really looking at re-examining what, what are our values calling us to? What are the words that we tend to use? Uh, how, and how do those call us to action? I think specifically, I, I believe that this is a time that congregations really, and those who are in privilege really need to focus on how is it that they view power as related to their to the economic situation, are they able to see the that those who are in the wealth who are the other end of the wealth gap, for example, right now have a very very different experience than them? And what what does that lead us to? Uh, what actions do those lead us to? Uh, are congregations looking at how their foundation money is is invested, is distributed? Um, are folks thinking about uh, somewhat experimental ideas like decolonizing wealth. Um, th this is the time for those actions. And I think that especially as we, as uh, Christina Rivera pointed out, as we start to, as some of us start to take in money from the government to help in this crisis, we have to think about how it's distributed. Uh, we have to think about who in our congregations is, work is considered less valued than others and why is that? I think that's been another kind of uh, blow the lid off situation in our culture is what, what work is considered valuable and who is considered uh, valuable, who is considered within our circle of concern. And in a more practical way too, with, within um, just our congregation's membership, like who do we consider a an actual, and I don't mean, I mean membership in the broadest like sense of everybody being a member of the body, not like whether someone's, you know, formally signed a membership book or gone through a membership procedure. But if we think about the people who make up our community, one thing that I think we need to challenge ourselves about in this time of 
um, when everything's so starkly um, outlined is that sometimes people are okay with having people around, but they consider them not really part of the, the actual membership. Well, you know, so for example, our congregation has a number of people who are unhoused, who come to church every week. You know, they're very regular attendees, much more regular than some other folks, in fact. And, you know, I had one member say to me, but they aren't like in this time, we can't, we have to focus on who our real people are. And I'm like, that's, those are our real people. It is just as important to make sure that we are bringing them water. Cause how do you, you know, how do you keep clean? Like, this is a big issue. How we have to bring people the supplies they need to for well-being, as Sir says, in the same way we would worry about people's mental stimulation when they're shut in. You know, like these are important choices that we have to think about. And it comes out of that theological set of theological beliefs that that um, Elias outlined, you know, and I think that's really important. The one thing that I think we didn't talk about from a language standpoint, I'd ask Elias to talk about a little bit is this idea of like, what does it mean to to reclaim a liberatory tradition? I think that that is a beautiful question. and It will depend who you ask in these moments. What does that look like? You know, I think at the really basic uh, in, in the work that we did, uh, when we think about uh, creating a, a community based on liberation, right? It's really a community that is committed to the survival of, of all, right? Not only survival, but thriving, right, of who we are. Uh, and that means that it's a community that is uh, open to, to new learnings and to growing, to being uncomfortable, right? And it's not uncomfortable just to be uncomfortable, but it's uncomfortable understanding that we have circuit work to do and to ensure the survival of us. Uh, for, for us, I think that that particular conversation also meant of who is uh, the voices that we prioritize in, in our congregational life right, and in our denominational lives, some time heard uh, in our work uh, as well, thinking about liberation, is uh, we are not oftentimes recognized as leaders, uh, particularly those of us in the margin, unless there is a crisis. And when the crisis hit, then we end up working more and not being compensated for the work. So we do a lot of emotional labor, a lot of caring labor that is not considered or deemed essential, right? But it comes to our detriment and not our survival, right? We end up burning out and oftentimes leaving for things that we will not consider oftentimes asking, right, our white colleagues, right, to do. We are expected to do and, and, and do so gladly. Um, and when we think about then, what does it mean to live into a liberatory message, right, as a community, uh, it is really ground our relationships in terms of, of justice, um, right, and equity, right? So are we addressing issues of unpaid labor, right? Are we addressing issues of the, the expecting um, emotional care, right? Are we expecting um, those of us in the margin to uh, educate, re-educate, and then um, provide emotional care, right? When folks, when the work gets hard uh, for, for the majority, right, of our communities without having a space for us to um, take care of our own needs, right? Being cared for uh, is, is part of that challenge to leave into that liberatory message. So we have um, we have a lot of comments going on and um, a number of comments have just come in from uh, Shige Sakurai, uh, former view guest. Um, and um, I'm gonna try and condense what they, what they have to say uh, a little bit uh, but they, their question was about membership in Unitarian Universalism and growth in particular, and um, how the, this theology, liberatory theology, 
relates to a seeking growth. Um, for the purpose, for what purpose do we seek growth? Um, because Shige says that they see um, a lot of messages about membership equals money or membership equals the survival, but not a whole lot of talk about uh, growth being movement building and relationship building and that there's like a theological, and Shige didn't say this, but I will say there's a theological underpinning to why we might seek growth. Um, and I hear you calling us to embody the theology that we claim. So have you talked at, at all about this? I see people nodding. So I'm going to just toss it to the commission. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm going to just say that that could be a whole different series. We, and it could be. <laughs> it is a whole different series. Um, I think, you know, partly, um, let, let, let me say as briefly as I can, uh, and I think this is a challenge for us as Unitarian Universalists, uh, is that many of us, uh, if not, I would say maybe 90% of us, are refugees from other faiths, right, by, by and large. Uh, we, we are re religious refugees, and by that means is that there's a particular kind of, of anxiety, right, or uh, a gut reaction to any conversation uh, that it seems as being mission-driven, right, missionizing, evangelizing. Right, we don't have that language. We don't claim that language anymore. Uh, so we do not do outreach. Right, we do not, uh, because we also don't believe in proselytizing. Right, we don't believe in being doctrinal driven. Uh, it's really hard for us to communicate that message to others. Like, why would anybody join our faith community? Right, when we cannot articulate what is the value and the beauty of it for our lives. Right, I think that creates a, a big discrepancy for us. What we can do then is uh, we prioritize kind of out, outwards engagements that are not within the bounds necessarily of the sacred as a way to engage people in the work as a hook. Uh, and then part of the hook then becomes monetized into the kind of work that we do to contribute to the causes that we care for. Um, and I think that's really problematic for us if we are going to grow as a faith community, right? Because after a while, what we are experiencing and hearing is folks demanding or asking for what are, what are the, the rituals for us, right? And in fact, we're seeing it in this moment, right? This is a moment in which what we're hearing the most is what are the rituals that we need for community care? What are the rituals on right that we have for grieving, right? What are the rights that we have to do funerals at a distance, right? How do we care for folks and ourselves, right? In, in some ways, as a faith community, it is puzzling, right, that this become a new conversation. We should have already kind of the resources to do this kind of work. And I'm going to say, you know, if you go back to, to the Unitarian and the Universalist uh, from the 1930s, right, you have rituals for this. Right in the come up in, in the books of prayers, right? You have them, right? They are we have them. They are there, uh, but how do we re-engage them then in this particular time, understanding right who our community is and how do we live them into the future? Right? I think that is important. Uh, and, and the last thing that I'm going to say, I think that as a faith movement, uh, right, it is it is a moment for us to decide: right, are we going to be a faithing forward movement? Right? Are we going to be uh, the kind of movement that is? uh bold enough to say that we have a message that is worth listening to that is a message that can be um, a matter of, of life saving right if we don't want to say salvation of the soul that's fine but it's a life-saving message it is it is time to communicate that now to the world right otherwise right shelling internally right and maintaining uh kind of our closeness as a movement we can die right we can wither out um, and i think this faith is, is too powerful um, i to say and too beautiful for that to happen I think I would just add to that by saying that I think our we go from that theological basis, and and I think it will help us to understand how uh, how our messages in the world uh, need to be 
can need to be conveyed. I think that we have an opportunity here. Uh, as much as there is this, uh, I call it this horror uh, that we are experiencing in, in many communities, uh, this is also a time for us to hold up, as, as, as Elias said, these life-saving values that we have. Our, our congregational leaders writing letters to their, their, their uh, state officials around universal basic, basic income, around healthcare, around uh, equal access to testing. Uh, what, what are we saying and doing around our values right now? I think when we speak about growth, uh, I know that I want to be part of a tradition that I've been reading about since becoming a UU that actively moves into these spaces and, be, and is a cultural leader around how do we really bring our values of justice, equity, and, and, uh, and really well-being for all to the world. And, you know, I think this is the thing about membership. Um, and I want to go back to that area of question. Thank you for your synopsis. Um, thanks for the questions and um, Shinge and also for Michael's synopsis. I, we may not be um, that good at getting our message out, but here's the thing, folks, people are coming. The thing is that we reject them. Um, and the reality is also some of them actually stay, like somehow they have that fortitude and backbone and they stay, but we put them in some other status or we, like I was just describing, we, we don't see everybody as having equal status. We equate membership with money or we do some other thing, um, you know, and people are there. The we is much more complex than what we ever, ever acknowledge. And that's why we have to be very careful about global statements that we make, you know, generalizations. So I think it's really important to do that. And this is, this is, you know, we've been thinking about these issues for three years, very intentionally, very intensely. And what we found is that the, in order to, to actually live into our theological mandate for these times, we have to change a lot of what we do. Like there's, there's structural change at every aspect. Um, and so the, the thing about membership is that um, here we have just spent weeks, we're now in our sixth week of doing you know, all virtual church. That means we've been meeting without a building for six weeks. We've been um, doing a whole bunch of other things for six weeks. You know, Yes, we're definitely seeing the structural inequities because if someone doesn't have access to electronic communications, that's a problem. But right now we're in a drive where we're repurposing and, and um, redistributing um, second devices. If people have a iPad or if they have something they'll give to someone so someone could be part of our community. Like, there are other ways to get around these things, but it's all about who we see as us. And one of the things we talk about a lot is like, you know, widening the circle, right? Widening the circle uh, and centering more of us as us. And that's a theological question. It's not a philosophical question. It's not a, um, opinion it's like that's just it's who we are theologically that we have to see um that membership means that you show up showing up is contributing you know being offering your perspective you know talking in the line and making sure the minister me thinks about the person who's taking this stuff home to their home in their car right that's a gift for someone to do that and we we have to think about that very very carefully in these times i think because, you know, I think for me, what this has come down to, and this gets to Christina's comments about the PPP for me, it's like, do we actually, as Unitarian Universalists, believe that um, that our faith is essential? 
like we're talking about essential workers. Do we believe that what we do, what what our religious professionals, what our lay leaders do, that's just, do we believe that's essential work? That's really the question, right, for us right now. I do, you know. I think a lot of I think everyone on this call does, but I think there are a lot of people that don't, and that's the I think that's our fundamental theological challenge. It's a huge challenge, and I, I think about I can't even remember what guest it was, but talking about how for people of privilege, community means getting with people like you, and for marginalized people, and Antonia said this, and I have it's ricocheted in my head ever since. Community means survival. And um, so, you know, what kind of community are we building? One that helps people survive, particularly people on margins, or one that makes it a nice social club for people who want to be with people like them. And, and I see a lot of our congregations really ambivalent about that. And one of those is a theological mandate, and one of them is a cultural mandate of white supremacy culture. And they're really, really coming from such fundamentally different places. So, you know, there we are trying to be a faith. And, and you know, I, I just see this pulling at so many places. I love that phrase, sacred community. I, beloved community, I'm very familiar with, but sacred community, that's, um, that's a really beautiful phrase to, because that's talking about putting the theology in the center of the community. Whereas, I'm sorry, but for privileged people, beloved community means with being people with people like me. <laughs> you know? So it's not, it's, I know that's not what it really means, but for privileged people, that is how that is reinterpreted all the time. No, but, but it is, it is. I think, you know, one of the distinction for me, at least, between sacred community and beloved community, right? Beloved is oftentimes, you can frame beloved as a, those who, who you love the most, right? Those who you appreciate, those who uh, it's easy for you to be in relationship with. But when you're talking about sacred community, right? The, the, the sacred is dangerous, right? But there's no way to tame the sacred. Uh, it demands transformation, right? Of course, it's about comfort, of course, right? It uplifts your nervous system, but it also calls for, for transformation, right? It is, it is, it is not safe uh, space, in meaning that it's not comfortable just for who you are without demanding change and commitment of you. Right. So I think that's part of the difference that, that we need to articulate. And I think part of it, make um, your comments about the people of privilege, is how are you um, co-journeying right now? And who are you journeying with? And what is the work that you're willing to do with and for other people? Um, and I think that defines a lot of who, who is your community and who are the people that, that keep you going and that you keep going. In, uh, in return. So we are really appreciative that we will have the opportunity to be back with you because um, we do have a few topics that we, as you can tell, that we've thought about. And I've actually, okay, so we're gonna, I told you we might do two slides. So we're gonna do this one really quickly, um, just so that you can see that um, the 10 areas, Mark, that would be great, thank you. I just wanna acknowledge too, while this is coming up, our amazing project manager, Marcus Fogliana, without them, we would just not be nearly where we are. Um, so we're so grateful to them. Um, but I want to say that this is um, just just a preview of what's coming soon to a congregation near you or community near you, because we actually um, are going to make sure that at least one hard copy of this report is in every single community that's a UU community. So um, we are going to... Um, 
Oh, go ahead, Michael. Leslie, I was just going to say, can we make sure we read all of these 10 things for the, yeah, the, I'm gonna read to them. the people yeah. who are uh, uh, listening uh, on audio yeah. only? I am absolutely going to do that. So um, actually, I'm going to um, see if um, Mary would do that. But the, the, um, these are the 10 areas of our final report. And um, just want you to know, we're, we're really grateful that the view has invited us back to other uh, sessions, and we'll be talking about some of the other ones. Um, we talked a little bit about theology, though we seem to always talk about theology. We'll probably talk about that again. Um, but the other ones, I'll ask Mary to share with us. Yeah, so today we talked about theology, um, governance, um, congregations and communities, uh, hospitality and inclusion, living our values in the world, which we also touched on a little bit today, uh, religious professionals, uh, educating for liberation, innovation and risk-taking, restoration and reparations, and then accountability and resources. So those are the 10 areas that we'll cover in our report. Well, I'm so excited that you will be back a number of times because there's a lot of material in that little list. So we're really excited. Um, that you'll be here, you'll be back every other week for a while, I think. And that's fantastic for us. Thank you so much. Anything you didn't get to today that any of you would like final words about? I think uh, I would just uh, maybe put on our organizer hat and just urge folks to, as you use, really consider endorsing things like rent, uh, eviction, disconnection moratoriums, targeted free healthcare for the marginalized, Really ask yourself if there are organizations in your, in your area that support trans, queer, non-binary folks of color. Uh, to what what can you do as a church? Is there a way you can open up your pantries? Uh, all of these things are vital to the survival of of all of us. And also, I think this is a time to hold up our value of democracy. Uh, and I know we have a lot of congregational meetings coming up. Uh, I think it's imperative that we model how we vote remotely, uh, as I think that that is a, uh, this is a perfect opportunity to lift up that value and to help ensure that we all have a, a somewhat working democracy. And that's what I would also want to say is that, you know, people are, uh, many of us, and some of us are now in our second month of sheltering, um, but we certainly are all in multiple weeks. People are getting a little frustrated and bored. They need new things to think about. There is a lot of justice work out there that we could all be thinking about. We could be putting people towards. There's work on incarcerated people. Um, you know, there are people that are still haven't been left let out of jails where they're at incredible risk for for contracting this virus. There are there's work on women's rights. There's all kinds of work. There's a lot of work to be done around um, the income gap in our country and really using this as a chance to learn about that. Great time to be um, getting involved in healthcare for all efforts. So I say this because there's really no reason for anyone to be bored because we really have a lot of stuff that we could be doing every single day. And it would actually enliven our spirits, right? Because we would be reminded of, of our first and seventh principles and that would be a good thing. And Kiana Perkins in our chat reminds us uh, about babies and bailout, uh, which is life-saving work, um, getting moms out of out of jail, uh, paying bail for folks that Blue is uh, is leading, and and so that's something that's happening, like right from within Unitarian Universalism that we can support that is saving people's lives directly. Yeah, 
Hey, Kiana, we'd love to have this you. This Sunday, right? Yeah. Kiana, come on the show. We want to hear more about it. <laughs> um, yeah, and how we, how those of us who are getting money from the government can repurpose it right now. Just a really important thing to think about uh, for those of us with the privilege not to need it to eat, you know, who does? And uh, I think babies and bailouts, that's my choice. It's, you know, what an amazing way to help families. So yeah, um, thank you so much. We're really excited you'll be back and you'll be back and you'll be back. Thanks to everyone who listened and um, yeah, keep on, keep on on. See you next time. This has been an episode of The View. If you would like to learn more about the CLF, visit questformeaning.org. Thank you.